Well, I don't know if there's a better way for me to begin this morning than by what the Petersheim story has done for us. Thank you again, Greg and Tanya, for sharing your story and inviting us into that. And uh, the question I have is, where would you turn if you were, if you were Greg and Tanya, right? Like, if you get the diagnosis of triple negative breast cancer, where do, where do you go with that, right? Like, what doctor do we go to to say, can you fix that? You know what I'm saying? When, when your back is against the wall, where do we go? What, what do we do? What's our answer? And your story is different than theirs, right? I mean, it is. It is. And, and they don't begrudge you for that. And they're not asking for their story to be like yours or what. I mean, that, we understand that. Your story is different. But the question is, where do we go when our back is against the wall like that? In our family, I remember years ago now when our, our, our middle child was diagnosed with medical doctors would understand in the room, would understand a bronchial pulmonary sequestration. Doesn't that sound official? All that means is there's an extra lobe in the lung that was not supposed to be there, and with that diagnosis, it meant that if that thing grew and it currently had blood supply, and if it continues to grow, there's a 99% fatality rate for children like that. And so here we are, without knowing the end of the story, as a young couple trying to figure out what to do, and we have a kid in the womb who will likely die if this thing grows. And in the moment, not knowing the end of the story, the question is, where do you go when your back is against that wall? Now, your story might be different than that, right? I mean, it's going to be different than ours. And maybe your story, honestly, is a story of where you're sitting at in your marriage right now, if I could just put that out there. (laughs) Maybe your story is one where you wonder, where are we at financially? I don't know where to go. My back is against the wall. Maybe my story is, your story is, I don't know where I'm going to go in this career. I had a plan, and it's not working, and I wish I was further than I am, and I'm not, and I'm losing focus and perspective. Maybe yours is really a relationship with God and a lack of joy and life in, in that relationship and feeling like, man, I signed on to this a while ago, but I, I haven't even cared about the things of God forever. And I don't know where to turn with that because my back is kind of against the wall, and I've tried things, and I don't know what to do. And maybe it's simply for you a matter of just things aren't working in relationships. You've gotten dumped. You're thinking of, will I ever get married? Maybe you can't make rent payment. I don't know what it is. But when your back is against the wall, what do you do and where do you go? And here's why I'm grateful for people like Greg and Tanya and sharing their story and people who share their stories. And we've talked about this last week a little bit in this series, but that stories make sense of life by putting the flesh on bones of convictions. Greg and Tanya could get up here and say, we believe in God. Like, we believe he's faithful. That's fine. It's a conviction. But when they tell the story about how that works, that puts flesh on those bones. Stories also do this, and this is what I think Greg and Tanya's story does and what your story would do too if we told that. Stories create a longing in us for something more. What the Peter Shimes are going through right now I believe can be for all of us kind of a remember when moment down the road. I rem- Five years from now, a year from now, a month from now, 10 years from now, 20 years from now, I remember when Greg and Tanya shared in church that Sunday. I don't remember the message, I don't remember the music, I don't remember anything else, but I remember when Greg and Tanya told their story. And I want to respond like that. They create a longing in us for something more than what we're currently doing. This morning, in our study, remember when, we see a man, Nehemiah, whose back is against the wall. 
And he delivers to us a prayer that is so profound, as I see it, that it helps us process what should we do when our backs are against the wall, when there seems to be nowhere else to go and nowhere else to turn. And so I want to invite you, if you have a Bible with you, to turn to the book of Nehemiah. If you don't own a Bible, that's not a problem. There's a Bible around you in the pew near you, and that's our gift to you, by the way, if you don't own a Bible. But Nehemiah, the easiest way to find Nehemiah is go to the kind of middle of your Bible and find the book of Psalms, and then back it up a little bit, and you'll find Nehemiah. But in this story of Nehemiah that we're in, he's facing a significant crisis. And last week, uh, for, when we kicked off this series, we just we found Nehemiah in a place where as a grown man with great authority and power um, in, in, uh, as a cupbearer to the king, he was broken down. If you were with us last week, you remember this, that he had received such news that created a reaction, a physical reaction, and he had to sit down. He couldn't handle it anymore, and then he's weeping, and he's in tears for days. So Nehemiah is at the bottom right now, and he doesn't have any answers. Nehemiah's interest is in restoring the identity of a nation and the people of Israel. To, uh, to their former glory, if you will, to relationship with God. And it's the kind of work that would take 10,000 men to do, and he's just one person. And everything seems to be against him. And what is he going to do when his back is against the wall? And so Nehemiah, after this time, a couple days of prayer and fasting and mourning, he prays to God. And in that prayer, we see something amazing. And here's what I want to look at you. I want to look at that prayer with you. I'm going to read that, at least part of that now, and then we're going to look at it kind of verse by verse. So Nehemiah chapter 1 is where we're at. I'm reading from the New International Version. Uh, I'm going to read verses 5 to 10 this morning. Nehemiah uh, is speaking. And then I said, after a couple days of prayer and fasting, O Lord, God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and obey his commands, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer your servant is praying before you day and night for your servants, the people of Israel. I confess the sins we Israelites, including myself and my father's house, have committed against you. We have acted very wickedly toward you. We have not obeyed the commands, decrees, and laws you gave your servant Moses. Remember the instruction you gave your servant Moses, saying, If you're unfaithful, I'll scatter you among the nations. But if you return to me and obey my commands, then even if your exiled people are at the farthest horizon, I will gather them from there and bring them to the place I have chosen as a dwelling for my name. And finally, verse 10, they are your servants and your people whom you redeemed by your great strength and your mighty hand. We're going to pause it there for this morning. Let's look back at verse 5 as we begin to look at these verses and observe and see what's present. Look at Nehemiah saying, Then I said, O Lord God of heaven, great and awesome God, who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and obey his commandments. Look where Nehemiah begins. In his back against the wall moment, this is important to see where he begins. He begins with a moment that maybe some of you have shared. If you've ever been on a, um, a cabin weekend, you've ever gone away to the mountains, you've gone to the beach, you've seen the sunrise, the sunset, you've seen something amazing in nature, Grand Canyon, I don't know what it is, where you just are stopped in your heart and soul and you say, whoa. God made that. And you post on an Instagram, hashtag no filter, and you're like, hmm, right? Like this God has made, and it just blows you away what God has done because of the awesome power of God. And that's where Nehemiah begins his prayer. After this time of mourning, he says, whoa, let me remember, God, who you are. You're the God of heaven. You're the great and awesome God. Jeremiah says something similar to this in Jeremiah 32. He says, Ah, sovereign Lord, you made the heavens and earth by your great power and outstretched arm. Nothing is too hard for you. Some translations actually translate 
this great and awesome God phrase as terrible or awe-inspiring God. <laughs> terrible meaning terribly good, not terribly bad, but terribly awesome. I mean, incredible. This vision and picture of God who's incredible. And so Nehemiah begins his back-against-the-wall moment with getting away from his pain for a minute and saying, there's something more than me. There is a great and awesome God who has made the heavens. And God, I want to come there first and prioritize this in my mind and heart and get my prayer right at the beginning. God, you are great, you are awesome, and let me begin it there. And then he says, who keeps his covenant of love. And that is a beautiful statement. It is a beautiful statement, as if there's this love covenant that God keeps with his people, this agreement that he's made to relate to you and me in love, which is a beautiful thing for a God who's powerful to be so loving. And it is an incredible statement. But we also have to see the whole thing that Nehemiah is saying. And I want to go a little deeper on the character of God and the understanding of the Old Testament God here for a minute. This is uh, an important phrase, what he says next. He says this, who keep his covenant in love, but look how the verse finishes. With those who love him and obey his commands. I want you to understand what's in Nehemiah's mind here. You see he's qualifying that. He keeps his covenant of love and, process this with me for a minute, as North American Christians in the 21st century, we just want the thing to end there. But Nehemiah qualifies it. And in fact, he says, this covenant of love isn't for everybody. Isn't that what the verse says? You keep your covenant of love with people who do two things, with those who love him and obey his commands. You don't keep it with everybody. For the people who love you and keep your commands, that's who you keep your covenant of love with. That's exactly what this verse says. In other words, you're a God who gives me love, but only if I love you back and obey your commands. That's what Nehemiah says, and that is exactly right for where Nehemiah is. This is the relationship that Nehemiah had with God through what we call the Mosaic Covenant. This is the covenant that God made with Moses and said, if you obey me, then I will bless you, and if you disobey me, I will curse you. As Christians, if you're a Christian in the 21st century here, you do not have that relationship with God, and that is an incredible blessing. And the reason I bring this up is I want you to, again, appreciate what Jesus has done for us. Because on the cross, Jesus established a new covenant with all people. And that covenant is a covenant of love, yes, but it's a new covenant. A new covenant that doesn't get rid of the old. It doesn't, he, Jesus says, I haven't come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. That everything about the law that was meant to point you toward holiness and righteousness and godliness is found in me. And then Jesus utters three words on the cross to make sure that we understand there's no more work that we have to do. And he said at the end, remember, he said, it is finished. No more effort, please. The covenant of love that used to be For only those who love in response and only those who obey, that's over with. I have finished it on the cross and established a new covenant for all people at all time to come to know the God of the universe. And that is an incredibly powerful, powerful reality that we live in, that we sometimes take for granted, because this was not Nehemiah's reality. I don't want to miss that, because this is deep in Nehemiah's prayer, a relationship of you will love me if I love you. It's right there. Look at verse 6 with me. 
He asks, God, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer your servant is praying before you day and night for your servants, the people of Israel. And then he says, I confess the sins that we Israelites, including myself and my father's house, have committed against you. We have acted very wickedly toward you. We have not obeyed the commands, decrees, and laws that you gave your servant Moses. And this is very interesting to see the second thing that Nehemiah does. Not only does he come with this view and his back is against the wall, God, you're awesome. You're in charge. I'm under you as the God of heaven. Then he goes on to say, I'm confessing to you things that we have done as a people. And he steps into confession. Now, confession doesn't make you less effective as a leader. It just makes you honest. Right? It, doesn't, it doesn't strip away your value. It doesn't strip away your ability to lead or serve your wife, your children, your family, your business. It doesn't rip you apart. It just makes you honest and vulnerable. And in this process of back-against-the-wall reality, it is a fair question to always ask, do I have any responsibility in the reason why my back is against the wall? Like, is there something here, and here's what's going through Nehemiah's mind, is there something here, God, that we have contributed to make this problem worse? To Nehemiah's answer is yes. Like, we have not obeyed you, therefore I'm culpable, I'm responsible. And so, God, even if I haven't personally done it all, I want to confess to you that we're in a situation where our backs are against the wall, and I have been so arrogant, and we've been so arrogant as a people to think that we haven't done anything wrong because we've been so smart for so long, but I need to stop it here and confess. You are great, and I've probably messed up along the way. In fact, let me identify, let me confess to you the things that I have done to make this situation worse. And Nehemiah does that. There's a confession. There's a step into that. Okay? Now, let me, I, I need to say this quick because we're coming off the story with Greg and Tanya and, and health, and I've set this thing up as a conversation about back against the wall related to health concerns. In case your mind ever goes here, I need to clear this up here. This moment of confession in Nehemiah's prayer is not apples to apples to the story that we just heard. The biblical theology of suffering and healing and, and sickness, I believe, does not track one-to-one with confession of sin. In other words, cancer doesn't show up because you've done something wrong. That's just not the way it works. I don't get a headache because God is punishing me for whatever I've done wrong. It just doesn't work that way. It is a very weak theology, in my opinion, to say, uh, nope, let's track back your sickness to a lack of faith on your part. Jesus doesn't even do that, all right? So we're not doing that. That's not what I'm saying. There's not a confession need when your back is against the wall and health needs. However, there are sometimes needs for confession when our back is against the wall and a relational problem. Let's take a marriage situation or a financial back against the wall or anxiety that we're facing continuing to be anxious about things that we shouldn't be because we just don't want to to trust and give over control. There are times for confession there. No question about it. I just want to take that moment to clear that up. So that's what Nehemiah does. He steps in with confession. He says, God, I'm sorry. Like, we've blown it. And here, let me identify what it is. And then he goes on next. And he says in verse 8, he says, remember, Remember, and this is why we call our series Remember When, because throughout the book, Nehemiah is calling the people back and calling God back to remembrance time. Remember, please remember the instruction you gave your servant Moses, saying, if you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations, Mosaic Covenant. But if you return to me and obey my commands, then even if your exiled people are at the farthest horizon, I will gather them from there and bring them to the place that I have chosen as a dwelling for my name. Again, this 
story kind of creates a longing in us for more. The, Nehemiah's interest here is, says, God, you're, you're faithful. We long for more. Like I, we long as a people to be restored to what you have said you would do. So I'm asking you, God, to return to that, to be faithful to the promise that you have made. I'm asking you, God, to be faithful to the promise that you have made. God, be faithful to the promise that you have made. Now, Nehemiah just reminds him and puts it right in front of him in verse 10. He says, by the way, they are your servants and your people whom you redeemed by your great strength and your mighty hand. By the way, God, this isn't even my issue. You have responsibility here. Right? Like, you made them. You redeemed them. And the primary metaphor of redemption in the Old Testament is the nation of Israel coming out of Egypt. Like, God, you're the one who started this. You're the one who redeemed us. If you didn't care about us as a people, just leave us in Egypt to rot. But you brought us out. So, God, I'm calling on you. You've started it. Finish it. I'm confessing to you that we've blown it. I'm asking you to be gracious and hear and listen. You are a great and awesome God. And I know, God, you keep your promises. And by the way, this is your issue. Because you saved us. And I'm calling on you, God, to be gracious to us. And this is Nehemiah's response to his back against the wall. His prayer finishes in a verse that we're going to cover next week with an incredibly bold statement. But I want to pause it here for this morning because I want to ask the question again. Do you remember when you leaned on God to come through for you. Do you remember a time when you, like Nehemiah, were at a spot where your back was against the wall and you leaned into God to come through for you? Do you remember what that felt like? Do you remember the time, maybe when you were younger in youth group, maybe you were even younger than that, maybe you saw your parents respond, but you had a response and you had a reaction. You said, God, I, I don't know what to do. I'm not smart enough. I can't figure it out by God. I'm giving myself over to you now, and I need you to come through for me. I'm going to lean fully into that. Lean in, lean in, lean in. You remember a moment for you like that. Because here's what I want for you. I I want for you, I've said this in the beginning of the series. I've said it a couple times. I don't want us to become old and crusty, right? I've said that. I want our hearts and our passion, our longing, our love for God to always be stirred and kind of agitated with a reminder of, of how our heart can be pliable and soft before him. And as it's soft before him, he can move us and shape us in ways that we can only imagine. So I want to put it before us again and say, do you remember the times? Remember the times when God has already come through for you? Do you remember when you used to lean on him more than you do? Do you remember when your default reaction was, man, I need to, I need to pray about this. Now, like seriously, like I, just, I, need, I need to do that. Remember, remember that time? Remember what that was like for you? When your faith and your trust was more innocent. It was younger. And somewhere along the line, as age continues to roll wave upon wave upon wave over us, it does not become difficult to become more jaded in our trust, our faith, does it? How many of you all ever done a trust fall with somebody? Trust fallers, all right? Randomly do that after the service, I'd encourage you. Go to the foyer and just yell trust fall and see what happens, all right? 
If you've ever done a trust fall and you know the situation, you're there and someone behind you is meant to catch you or a couple of people behind you are meant to catch you. If you've ever done a trust fall and it hasn't worked, if, you, if that's ever happened, you've ever done a trust fall and it hasn't worked and you've actually hit the deck or you've seen it or you've done it to your buddies on purpose just for fun, all right? And if I were to get up here and tell you, do the trust fall again, you would be wise to say, not with him. Right? Wouldn't you? Like, if, if you and I are doing a trust fall and you lean into me and I just watch you hit the deck and I say, oh, sorry, I'll get you this time, you're smart not to trust me again on that. Right? And this is the issue, and this is the problem of hope. And hope is a problem, by the way. It's a good problem, but it's a problem. The problem of hope, particularly related to our faith, is that we confuse what we're asking God for and what we're asking God to do. And in a message like this, what you can be hearing is, okay, this guy up front is encouraging me to hope again. He doesn't know that I've done a couple of trust falls on God and he has let me hit the deck. I've gotten sick. Our marriage is not saved. In fact, it's worse. My kids have continued to do what they're going to do. I have not found a date yet. I'm continuing to live a single life, and I'd rather not. My roommate is continuing to do what they're doing. I still cannot pay the rent after X number of months or years. Like, I'm leaning into him, and all you're doing is telling me trust him again. Like, I would be a fool to trust him again because he's let me hit the deck. And this is the problem of hope. I can't just encourage you to keep hoping and hoping and hoping again and again and again. This is the problem of hope. We need to clarify what is it that we're asking God for. And this is why this moment is so important for you and I believe for me. Many people, and you know some of them, I know some of them, they're my friends, have walked away from faith because they haven't understood the difference of when we call people to hope, what we're calling them to hope in. Nehemiah's hope. I put it this way, the way we need to respond, we need to lean on God to do what he's already said he would do, not whatever we want him to do. We need to lean on God to do what he's already said he would do, not whatever we want him to do. Those are two vastly different things sometimes. Nehemiah's prayer is a prayer, God, I want you to be faithful to your promises. I want you to be faithful to what you have said. I want you to come through for you. And there are times when our interests line up with that, but there's also times when my interests don't line up with that, right? There are times when I want things that I think are in God's best interest for me, but I'm just wrong. Have you ever been there? Have you ever been a child in the home of your parent? Aren't you glad that your parent didn't give you everything you wanted when you were nine? Aren't you glad for that? Aren't you glad for a wise parent who says, no, like 14 cookies is not a good idea for dessert. I know that they seem good, but this is not a good idea for you. And in your five-year-old mind, whatever it is, like, no, this is what I want, right? Aren't you glad that you're still not dating that person you were dating in high school? Don't nudge anybody, right? Like, Oh, but in the time, it seemed awesome. Like, it seemed like we're meant to be. And then a week later, it's like, I can't believe they're on the planet, you know? In the moments that we have, our perspective is so limited. 
And this is why it's such an important distinction to make. When I ask you to hope, okay, listen, when I ask you to hope, and when I ask you to kind of do a trust fall again, your back is against the wall, and you wish things were different somewhere along the line in your life and mine, that I'm not just asking you trust again blindly that God will do whatever you want him to do. God may not heal you, okay? Like, I just need to say that. God may not fix your your money the way you want it. He may not fix the marriage exactly the way you want it. It may not come through exactly the way you want it. So be careful to listen clearly to what I'm saying. I'm not telling you. Just tell God whatever you want and expect that he's going to do your bidding or mine. He's bigger than that. He's the God of heaven who has made all of us. And so we appeal to him to be faithful to his promises as our sovereign king. And are we glad that our parents did the same for us as good and loving parents? Gave us what we needed, when we needed, even if it was painful and not understood at the time. And so let me push on this a little bit to encourage you. I'm going to push some encouragement toward you to clarify this a little bit. I want to encourage you to pray for things like peace in the middle of your circumstances. I want to encourage you to appeal to verses like Isaiah 26, for example, verse 3. You will keep in perfect peace those, who minds, those whose minds are steadfast because they trust in you. You're in a circumstance, your back is against the wall. It is appropriate and right to say, God, you have promised peace in Isaiah 26 that when my mind is steadfast and trust in you, like, you're going to give me this peace. I want to ask you, God, to deliver that to me. I don't know if you're going to get me out of this situation, but I want to ask for your peace. And I want to appeal to you. I'm your creation. You've made me, and you said you would do this. So please give me peace in this moment. It's appropriate prayer to pray for that. I also want to encourage you to pray this way in Matthew 6.33. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. This is in the context of provision for daily things. You can't quite make ends meet. Things aren't working right financially. Things aren't working right in the resources that you have. I want to encourage you, God. I don't know how we're going to make ends meet. I don't know the answer to that. I don't know if you're going to give me a new job. I don't know if I'm going to win the lottery. I don't know what's going to happen. You know, someone's going to die. I'm going to get a million dollar inheritance. I don't know how it's going to work. But I just know that somewhere in here in Matthew 6, you said that if I seek the kingdom of God first, that you take care of the lilies of the field, you take care of the the birds of the air, and that you promised to take care of me. I just want to, I don't know what that's going to look like, but I just, I'm going to lean into that. I'm going to trust you again for that. Places like 1 John 1 9. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. You struggle with forgiveness, forgiving yourself for things in your past, things you've done, things you wish you would have done that you didn't do, actions that you took, things that you've watched, things that you've given to, things that you've said. You struggle with the shame and the guilt and the burden of not being a good enough parent and not doing this well enough, not doing this. You struggle with that? Like we get that. We share that together. I want to appeal to you again. Lean into this, God, you, you say you're going to forgive. Like, I trust you. This is a promise of yours. I'm not making this up. I'm asking you, forgive me, and I can trust that you're going to do that. Like, I'm asking you to be faithful to your promise. And here it is. 1 Peter 5, 7, cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. Do you struggle with anxiety? <laughs> Oh, what's next? What's coming up this week? What's next week? What about this and the future and the kids and my family and my health and my business and my home and my car and my dog and whatever? Like, ooh, you know what's going to happen? This and then, which social media just feeds, by the way. We understand that. Okay. First Peter 5 7. God, listen, I'm anxious. The Bible tells me you care for me. So, I'd, God, I, I am appealing to the fact that you care for me. Because you care for me, you care about the things that I care about. 
And you can also help me care about the right thing. So I'm appealing to you, God, help me to give you my anxiety. And let me trust that you care for me. Finally here this morning on this one. Hebrews 13, 5 and 6. God has said, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. So we say with confidence, the Lord is my helper, I will not be afraid. What can mere mortals or what can man do to me? You struggle with God's presence, wondering if he's around, does he care, is he present? I just want to appeal to you. Verses like Hebrews 13, 5 and 6. God, you say you're always around, you're here. I want to appeal to them, I want to ask you to come through for me. So this is Nehemiah. He comes in, his back is against the wall, right? His back is against the wall. Say, God, there's a job here that 10,000 men need to do. I'm only one. And Nehemiah is pretty straight up with it. He says, God, you're the God of heaven, the God who's great and awesome in power. And I come under that. And I want to take responsibility for anything that I've done to make this worse. I want to confess my sin to you. And if you're in a back-against-the-wall situation where it's relational, then we likely have a part. You may have heard it said before that if you're in a marriage, by the way, talked to some of us men about this before, and I feel pretty high bar on this, men, married men. If you're, if you're a married man and there's something going on in your marriage that isn't quite right, which, by the way, should be all of us, so let's welcome to the club. Unless you're Jesus, uh, you're not going to be perfect, all right? So uh, there we go. So let me just resonate with you on the struggle uh, of this. But as we walk the journey, right, as broken men, I'm reminded, I think it was Andy Stanley who said it first, he said, um, in my marriage and in my family, if anything goes wrong, it's my fault. Anything. The reason for that is I started this whole thing. I asked her, will you marry me? And everything from that point on is my responsibility. Even if I have no idea why my teenage daughter is crying in a room and then laughing and then going crazy and then whatever, he said, it doesn't matter. I started it. I'm responsible for it. So married men, let me just encourage you with that. We have a pretty high responsibility to say, man, if there's something going on, God, I need to confess some stuff. I mean, let me get that right. And then they ask you for your help in that process. Back against the wall. I'm going to confess whatever I need to. And then, God, I'm going to ask you, step in. And I want to appeal to the promises that you make. So, do you remember when? Do you remember when you leaned on God to come through? And if you don't, if you don't, then let me ask you this question. Can you imagine what it would be like if you could lean on that kind of God to come through? Can you imagine what it would do for you if you could lean in? You could pray with that conviction. You could hope, again, that he will do what he said he will do. Next time we jump into the series, which will be in two weeks from now, we're going to see a pretty audacious statement that Nehemiah makes with courage and boldness that I would long for us, long for me to have. Look forward to getting into that in two weeks with you. Next week, Derek Slayball will be sharing with us, and uh, he, uh, I know, is looking forward to that. And I know you all will be blessed by that, too. Will you pray with me as we wrap it up here this morning? Our good God and Heavenly Father, thank you so much for the opportunity to be in your word this morning and to hear from Greg and Tanya and their story, how you are working in and through them. 
I pray for us as people here this morning when our backs are against the wall and when we're facing whatever it might be, whether it's anxiety or impatience or uh, lack of trust or resource provision or uh, marriage difficulties or singleness difficulties or whatever it might be that we are just kind of coming up against and we don't think we can solve and are just kind of eating our lunch, so to speak, that you would help us. You would help us by reminding us the things that you have already promised that you would do. And so help us not to be unnecessarily anxious, unnecessarily worried, unnecessarily afraid, but to step in, take responsibility where we need to, confess where we need to, and trust you. Put it back in your court and ask you to provide the things that you already said that you would do. Lord, we need you every hour, every moment of every day. And I pray that you would encourage and strengthen us with what we know that we need to do. In Jesus' name we pray.